Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Cyber Coast to Coast. I just want to mention to everybody that this episode of Cyber Coast to Coast is brought to you by Cyberlytica, proactive cybercrime intelligence. And to learn more about Cyberlytica, some of the great stuff that they're doing, please visit cyberlytica.com. I'm Scott Schober. I'm one of your hosts here on the East Coast, and I am joined by my brother on the West Coast. Craig, hey, how you doing there? Hey, everyone. How you doing, Scott? Uh, this is Craig Schober here on the West Coast, um, uh, coming out of Long Beach, California. Nice. Uh, we, are, we are catching up with you this day today. It's about 70 degrees here in beautiful New Jersey, which is not normally that warm. What's your temperature over there, Craig? Oh, it's, what is it? 75 right now. Okay, so we're pretty close then. Not 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 too far off, at least. Nope. We're in, we're, in cool. just, we're getting into spring, I'd say. Awesome. I just wanted to give a quick rundown of our stories uh, for this week. Some of the stuff we're going to look forward to that we'll be chatting about tonight. Uh, the first one, uh, again, it's topical because everybody's got concerns about Ukraine and Russia. Uh, this one here is talking about Russian hackers, how they've exploited vulnerability and multi-factor authentication and the security protocols and how they're targeting and attacking different companies. That's brought to us by uh, Cyber News. So we look forward to that. We'll be chatting about that a little bit. The second story there is from Bleeping Computer, which I love. Great source for, for stories that are a little edgy. And, and that one is talking about uh, Germany's Federal Office for Information Security, BSI, has warned companies against using products of the Russian antivirus company Kaspersky, which I find interesting. Uh, certainly Eugene Kaspersky, um, many people are aware of. They've got some interesting virus antivirus uh, software that's been out for years, very successful company. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. And then finally, a nice story here coming from The Verge, why Netflix is starting to crack down on password sharing. Geez, everybody's got Netflix. Let's talk a little bit about that later and find out about password sharing and what they're doing to crack down on that. But maybe before we jump right into the first story there, Craig, I just wanted to share the uh, cyber tip of the week. I'll share an interesting stat and then uh, maybe even get a, a feeling from what you uh, what you see out there and talking to people. And I'll share a, a personal experience again, um, just so people can relate, hopefully. The first one here, the cyber tip of the week is talking about password reuse. And it's still a problem. I've been talking about this for years. Every time I go to a trade show and talk about it, and I ask the audience, I poll them, a huge number of people, more than half the people, every time they raise their hand, yeah, they admit, I reuse the same password across multiple sites. Recent statistic that just came out and uh, a number of people were polled, at least 65% of people reuse passwords across multiple sites. And interesting, a subnote to that, they said, although 91% of the participants in this survey understand the risks of password reuse, 59% of those people admitted it to doing it anyway. So in other words, they realize the risks. They may be a, a victim, uh, but they still do it. Why? Why do you think this keeps happening? And any thoughts from your end? I mean, it really rings true to me. Uh, I don't do this anymore. I mean, part of it is because we're kind of in the business of cybersecurity. Yeah, so true. it's a great way to force yourself to do the right thing. But, uh, you know, years back, uh, I had, you know, I think we all come up with our own systems of password, you know, mine was a certain password that I used and I would, and depending on the year, 
that I created this password, I would just put the year in and then put like a special character or something like yep. that. That would be my password. I really wouldn't think about it. Then I started to see, I actually uh, brings it right back to our sponsor. I remember seeing, um, doing one of their free uh, dark web scans through Cyberlytica. And I saw that my email and my uh, password had been uh, put up there. You know, it was one of many <laughs> variations of my password, but it was it was probably more than half of the password chunk. And I know once they have that many characters, it's it's a pretty simple matter of just, you know, for any uh, computer program to just kind of go through all the other variations and it will take it you know, not very much time at all to figure out your password. Yeah. And so, yeah, I had all these different varieties of passwords throughout the years. And sure enough, when I would go and uh, check out, uh, go through Safari and see uh, the Apple password keychains, so I'm using, I'm using a Mac most of the time. Uh, it would give me all these warnings on these old passwords. Some of them were, you know, over 20 years old. So these were dormant accounts I'd never used, don't care about anymore, had no uh, relevant information that could mm -hmm. be used to hack me. Um, but still hundreds of these accounts are out there. And uh, I was being warned that they contain uh, weak passwords, passwords that have already been breached. And so it's, it's very easy for me to believe that typical users will really will um, reuse passwords frequently. Um, you know, and these stats say, oh, they, you know, 65% reuse passwords. That's, that's more than just one reuse, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's going to be if they even if they only have dozens of accounts, which most of us have more of uh, these days, you're still reusing the password across multiple accounts. So that that just creates a bigger attack surface, a bigger way for it them to be found. And then ultimately more and more breaches from, you know, um, just one user. So uh, it's highly credible that uh, a lot of people are reusing passwords on a regular basis, even if they feel guilty about it, they're still doing it. Yeah, so true. And despite what we may preach and and talk about and educate people. I, I'm going to give you one close to home and it is embarrassing, but just literally this week, two nights ago, my son wanted to watch a hockey game. And, and typically if we're watching the family's watching a show on TV, we only have one TV in the house. I know it's embarrassing, but we all kind of sit around the TV. My son wanted to watch a hockey game. We wanted to watch something else. So he borrowed my wife's laptop and he has to opt, uh, 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 access it through our broadband provider. And he has a, a password that he could log on. Well, it didn't work. And he came down. He was all frustrated. He goes, I can't watch my hockey game, Dad. What's wrong? What's wrong? I went on there and I started to research him. And my wife's ID for the broadband access on the Internet changed. I changed that. I updated it. But, but during the process of it, I got a, a red flag came up and it said her password was weak. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, geez. That is a pretty weak password. So I looked down the list and, and again, it was through a keychain, and it listed about 30 passwords for all these online, online sites she goes to. And it says you reuse your password across all these different sites. And I went, <laughs> oh my. And I scream across the room and I said to my wife, do you really reuse the same password across all of these sites? And she goes, well, yeah, it's the only one I could remember. And I went, ah, and I started screaming and, and I kind of got that sick feeling inside and went in there and I had to start doing some password management and changing it and explaining to her the dangers of it and how many people do it. She's not alone, but why she's got to make a long and strong password for each site. So that was kind of a, a something too close to home for me because you assume 
just because I deal with this daily or you deal with it daily, we assume our family members do too. And they realize how important it is to make a long, strong password, not reuse it across multiple sites. But guess what? That's not always the case. So we're all guilty of this, I guess, to some extent. And full disclosure, I was kind of laughing. This, this helps me. This was a couple of years ago. I remember back, there was some show on and I wanted to watch. It was a movie or something. And I looked and I searched. I couldn't find it looking on Apple TV. And I said, oh, it's on Netflix. Oh, let me go on. Oh, wait, I don't have a Netflix account. Oh, wait, my brother does. So then I literally went on and I said, well, I wonder what his password is. I know years ago he used to use this password and he would attach a year to it. Or this. I tried it and guess what? I accessed got, it. We it. watched the movie <laughs> and I laughed and I said, oh, I said, he does the same thing that everybody does. He reuses the same password. Hopefully you don't anymore. But right. um, it was kind of funny because you, you, when you know somebody a little bit, you have little tells and you could build upon that and actually figure out what their password is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's not, it's not, not just unique to you. It's probably unique to me and all of our listeners. So hence, what's the reason the cyber tip of the week, do not ever reuse the same password across multiple sites, because especially those that are acquaintances or know you, could easily figure it out through be it social media or just knowing your likes and dislikes or your pattern of password creation. Yeah, I'll I go one further and this is getting into sci-fi almost. I don't think it's happened yet, but knowing the advance seeing the advances in artificial intelligence, I could totally see this happening even in the next few years. Um, you know, you when you create in I use Safari in in the browser, Safari browser and um you know, they give you the option. You can create your own password from scratch, or you could have Apple create like their password. You know, Apple's doing a truly uh, randomized thing with like 12 characters. I think they do it, but I'm, I'm in the habit of creating my own and I have like a master list that I keep, you know, hidden and encrypted and all that stuff. And so when I create one, I'll create it in the list and then kind of copy and paste that directly into the password field that I created. Now you would think I would just do random characters and I try to do random characters, but if you look at my list, I can almost, I'm not as good as a computer. I'm not, I'm not, artif- I don't have artificial intelligence, but I guarantee that a really smart program will be able to look at my list and say, if he's going to do a capital, if he's going to do the letter T, he's probably going to do a capital T. If he's going to do a J, it's going to be lowercase yeah. J, you know, that, that kind of, those kind of little connections it can make. And I'm predicting that people who do create random passwords will soon be, uh, mm-hmm. discovered to actually not do random passwords because, you know, your brain does your, our brains are, are made to, uh, find patterns and to reproduce those patterns. And those, once those synapses in the brains are fired, I'm so used to starting my fingers in the same place on the keyboard, yes. even though I think it's random. And so I'm thinking it's random, but I have a feeling that computers know better. And so that's another thing to watch out for in the future. <laughs> Hey, you know what? I never really thought of that. But now that you said that, I'm just thinking back to the last couple passwords I created. And in the the string of characters that I entered, the number was 357, hmm. which is really an odd number. It's repeatable. It's really to fill out the void to make sure that it's 12 to 15 characters long. And no, that's not the actual numbers that I used in my password, but I'm just using it as an example, something that I personally made probably a mistake because I repeated that same mindset and thought mm-hmm. 
And in my mind, I convinced myself, well, this is really random. No one else will guess it. And probably they won't because the password was so stinking long. It's ridiculous to remember. Um, But we tend to patternize it. And there's probably some interesting algorithms with AI that could start to figure out what patterns are you you start to gravitate toward and hence reuse because that will instantly break down the effectiveness if if it's 12 character password for example and i reuse the same three characters all the time guess what now now it's a lot easier that that thousand years to guess that may shrink to a hundred years and with ai that may shrink to a year or less Mm -hmm. so we have to really be careful when we create passwords to give it some thought especially the really secure sites that we don't want anybody to, to have access to. Yeah. That's yeah. It's like a, it's kind of like a psychological password reuse. We don't even know we're doing it and we're doing mm-hmm. it, you know, like that street you grew up on your first landline phone number, all those numbers, those things are, those digits are imprinted in our brains, at least our, yeah. you know, people of our age, you know, younger people, I don't think do that associate those things so much because they're not associated they're not tied to physical landlines physical addresses they don't even know their cell phone numbers half the time you know that kind of stuff so we'll see how this stuff all kind of uh plays out in the coming decades but yeah it's really interesting yeah absolutely all right well let's jump right into our stories here again this first one here is coming from cybernews.com russian hackers have exploited a vulnerability in multi-factor authentication security protocols and are using it to attack different companies. Very, very interesting. Again, because Russia is getting involved in everything, and we're all kind of on the edge. Nobody knows how this whole Russian-Ukraine conflict war is going to play out. We keep hearing ongoing threats of Russia going to be hacking the U.S., and everybody's on high alert. Well, this news story was kind of broken by a joint statement from uh, the FBI and the U.S. cyber watchdog CISA, who's been doing a lot of great things in the United States, just educating, partnering with tech companies and other things that we talked about weeks ago. Um, And the story, in in essence here, um, and then I'd like to get your thoughts on it, Russian-backed threat actors exploited a misconfigured account set to default MFA, multi-factor authentication protocols, which allowed them to deploy a new device and access the victim's network. Mm-hmm. Um, before I even dive in any further, I think we've probably heard a couple times where, hey, multi-factor authentication is 10 times more secure, 100 times more secure. That being said, if they can exploit something that's misconfigured mm-hmm. and they can target it and they understand the inner workings of multi-factor authentication and the shortcomings that we humans have, what red flags pop up in your mind, Craig, when you're thinking about that? Um, I mean, I go, I, I go to like open source versus closed source. I mean, I have a mm-hmm. feeling, I don't know the specifics about their MFA, uh, you know, their protocols and their setup. And, but I, I feel like a, this wouldn't happen as likely in an open source situation. Um, you'd have, you have people, uh, experts, um, hackers, um, uh, you know, enthusiasts, whatever you want to call them going through, you know, people, part of this community able to go through and find these exploits. And it wouldn't be as, um, as big an issue because, you know, like you said, the, the, when you hear something is multi-factor, you by default think, okay, it's safer, but not if it's not configured properly. You know, if these exactly. the companies or the governments behind these things 
don't configure them properly, have exploits, and most importantly, don't share the source code with people who could vet this, don't have them tested well, then you're going to run into problems like this, and, which is the worst type of problem. Because when you think yeah. something is safe and it isn't safe, that's when you get hacked the worst. You know, yeah. you're not you're not prepared for it at all. So that's what that's what I think of when I when I see stories involving this. Uh, you know, it's kind of a I think they use a brute force uh, password mm -hmm. uh, guessing attack in, in this through the um, exploited uh, MFA system. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, as we dig more into the story there, some of the specifics, they, they mentioned that cyber criminals exploited a critical vulnerability known as prime nightmare. And, and I think that's one thing we have to back up and, and analyze and understand. Cyber criminals, we always talk about, they share information, they educate one another, they talk freely. So when cyber criminals share and understand a known critical vulnerability, and now they can exploit it, and in this case, as you mentioned there, they gain access to, to password guessing attack there, um, and it worked because it was a predictable password, um, it allows them to gain access much quicker and get in deeper and do more damage because they're sharing information, they know the, know the vulnerability and how to kind of, in a sense, find a back door to it. That's the challenge there. We, being the good guys, don't always share that information, private and public, private company versus a government agency. If we shared more information and we're more transparent and expose some of these vulnerabilities, we could shore them up better we could make things a lot better. And I think that's some of the fundamental weaknesses, even though we all tout, hey, use multi-factor authentication and use this and that. Hey, when there's a known critical vulnerability and nobody talks about it, guess what? Nobody's going to shore it up. Nobody's going to make sure that they can keep that, that, that cyber security stance um, secure. So, yeah. so I think it's a big problem. The and, great and more needs to be done. The great thing about um, any kind of multi-factor authentication is when it's implemented properly and securely, it's greater than the sum of its components. In other exactly. words, you have a login that involves a username and a password. That's great. That's secure. Um, you have another factor that you add to that that has to be used mm -hmm. in conjunction with the login. That's great and that's secure. But the two alone can, as we've seen you know, time after time, can be vulnerable to all types of uh, social engineering hacks and, and brute force attacks and those things. Mm -hmm. But when you take those two things and put them together, you're not just saying uh, you can, you know, your, your software can guess someone's password. It will take one year and it will be able to hack the, um, what is it? The, let's say, let's say you're using a text message as your, as your other factor, it will be able to hack the phone companies and, you know, your carriers, and that will take a year. It, you're not saying that one year plus one year is going to take two years to hack. You're saying one year plus one year is going to take 10 years to hack or a hundred years to hack because you have that wild unknown, you know, uh, factor that combination that's required. That's, you know, the multi-factor aspect of it. So, uh, whenever I, anything with multi-factor, I, I feel a great sense of security. Um, unfortunately in this case, it didn't help. It didn't help nah. these guys. Um, but you know, by and large it's, it helps, uh, it helps everyone, uh, maintain security everywhere all the time, you know, all the time. Yeah. Good, good, good point there. All right. Well, that, that, that kind of takes us into our, our next uh, story here. 
and that's uh, coming from Bleeping Computer. And uh, the title of this one here is Germany's Federal Office for Information Security, BSI, has warned companies against using the products of Russian antivirus company Kaspersky. Interesting because, and maybe just a little context or backstory, um, Kaspersky, Kaspersky Labs, I guess, is really very well known. He, Eugene Kaspersky is well known around the globe, especially in the world of cybersecurity, large company. I think there's over 4,000 employees. They really uh, started off back in the 90s. They weren't very well known, but they kind of came to the forefront providing a lot of uh, great software that can combat, you know, viruses and malware and things like that. So people, people really use it around the globe and, and he's well-respected. Um, he, he's very wealthy. He's got more than a billion dollars to his name because of the success of his company. Brilliant man. Um, and it's interesting. He's not that much older than us. He's about our age group and is, you know, just a young 50. So it's kind of interesting. I did have the, the privilege of chatting with him back and forth, not in person, but through email, um, I sent him a copy of our first book, Hacked Again, and I got some nice praise and feedback from him, which I was certainly flattered. And that was a number of years ago. Haven't talked to him really since then. And of course, his, his growth in his company has skyrocketed, although the past few years has been problematic just because um, the DOD at one point, if you remember, kind of banned the use of Kaspersky software, stating that there were possibly um, used for spying and there was other things planted in it, so on and so forth. Again, it was alleged. I don't know whether or not it was proven or not, but but across the board, the, at least USDOD stopped using Kaspersky software, which was heavily used there. And then here comes this story here. Now, the essence of the story mentions about um, a warning, basically, after Russian threats against the United States, against EU and other Western partners. And um, there was a lot of questionable things in the past about whether or not um, there's spying going on and other things through Kaspersky on behalf of Russia. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that that's where kind of the essence of a lot of this stuff here starts. But the, the story here is mentioning that BSI stated that Kaspersky has high level privileges on Windows systems, something that could potentially be used to extract files from computers. And, and of course, across the board, that raises red flags. If he's got some insider connection or special access to things, I think that would be very concerning for people, especially with the heightened tension between the, the West and the things that are going on with, with uh, Russia right now. Just curious if, if when you kind of see these headlines and some of the um, mentions here of Kaspersky, what, what pops into your mind? What does your gut tell you? These uh, these headlines aren't new. Um, the U.S. Yeah. has had a very uh, rocky, uh, even more so than uh, the Middle East, more so mm-hmm. than China. Uh, I think the U.S. The his- it goes way back to the Cold War. You know, yeah. there's like yeah. this, you know, Russia phobia. They they don't trust Russians, and a lot of that stuff is just kind of nonsense. Uh, but a lot of it's based on some kind of truth. And a lot of that truth is still classified and we don't know the, the whole truth. So it's a lot of, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, misinformation out there. But like, just looking back while you were, uh, you know, going over some of the bullet points of story, I did a quick Google and I see in uh, Bloomberg business week, a story back from 2017, mm-hmm. um, 
Kaspersky lab has been working with Russian intelligence. That's the headline, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't age well on the internet. If you can find it that quickly. Um, And then just looking at like the way kind of Google search engine organizes uh, topical news, more topical news stories. I typed in Kaspersky, uh, uh, not trusted just to, just to see what would come up, what stories <laughs> what would come pops. up. Yeah. And the first thing above all of the, above all the other choices and above what other people are asking that are similar, it says, no, Kaspersky is not a very trustworthy company. And then it goes on to say after Russia's army unlawfully invaded Ukraine, effectively weaponizing intelligence, we can, we can conclude that we don't recommend personal users trusting Kaspersky with their personal information. So there's definitely, and that, that was a cybernews.com thing. And you could, you know, you could take that or leave it if you, if you trust that particular journal or not, I don't have an opinion because I'm not going to read the whole story and I don't want to, I don't want to go back and forth, but you could see that it's very easy to do a pile on, on top of this company right now, especially right now, because Google knows people are searching for these things. People are going to be clicking on these things. And so the search engine is kind of feeding the monster whether that monster is as big as they say it is or not, is it, it's a different story and something we don't, you know, we don't have time to get into. Um, but I, I think it's interesting um, how timing and past stories can all feed in and create this sort of, sort of fear and, and paranoia about uh, this company. And, you know, Kaspersky, like you said, he's a billionaire and right now, billionaires are the Russian billionaires are the least liked people in the world right now, because everyone knows they hold the key to Putin's ear. You know, they have his ear. And if they say nay or yay, if they say nay, the war could, could probably end. Um, But if they say, if they, if they say, keep fighting, keep going, he'll probably just keep doing it because they have more influence over him than any other country or any other people in the world. So yeah, so that's true. unfortunately the way it is right now. And, it, and it's interesting too. And it was a different administration because back in 2017, I was just looking for the time frame, um, but it was really under the Trump administration where it, they banned the use of Kaspersky products on all government machines. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the hard line that was taken back then. And, and I guess in, if you look at some of the recent tweets and things like that, perhaps Kaspersky overstepped and shared things or some opinions that might go in conflict with what's going on from a U.S. perspective or Russian perspective regarding the war and other things. And I think mm-hmm. the, they do um, tend to brand somebody quickly. Hey, you're on this side or that side. So I'm assuming it's not good for business regardless some of the comments and things that he said and some of the past yeah. things that have happened. So. Well, he, he tweeted, he sent a tweet out on March 1st and that only fed into this yeah. the problem. I didn't think it was, I think, you know, when you pick apart every word someone says in a tweet, um, sure, you can always find something to, you can find fault with something. That's why you have to uh, carefully craft a tweet, especially exactly. when you represent a billion dollar company. Uh, but he wrote, uh, we welcome the start of negotiations to resolve the current situation in Ukraine and hope that they will lead to a cessation of hostilities and a compromise. We believe that peaceful dialogue is the only possible instrument for resolving conflicts. War isn't good for anyone. Now, that's all very, you know, give peace a chance and kumbaya, you know, as a general statement, but he's, you know, I think just the use of the word negotiations, uh, you know, in that he thinks that 
it's not Russia can't Russia shouldn't stop you know bombing and attacking. Ukraine should negotiate with them and maybe should give up something in return for Russia yeah. to start being. That's when people look at it kind of you know funny and say, well, wait a minute, they were they were they weren't the aggressors. They were attacked by Russia for seemingly no reason. So why yeah. should they have to go to the negotiating table? Like it's just it it doesn't. You know, he should have he should have reworded it. I suppose he should have you know yeah. thought about it, give it a little more thought before he put that statement out for the world to see. Yeah, yeah. Per- perhaps he he overstepped it a little bit or shared something too personal. Whether or not he feels that this way or that way, who who really knows? But I, I think when people step into the political arena and share their advice or something on a very public platform like Twitter, and there's such tension. I mean, the, at the end of the day. I always feel for the innocent people, be it in Russia, be it in Ukraine, be it in the surrounding countries, they're, they're trapped based upon what's going on with the, the policies and the, the political element around them of a, a war going on that probably most people would think would never happen in our day and age. Nobody would think that there's even a possibility that that would happen, a World War III-like uh, scenario, which is now starting to morph into a somewhat of a cyber war in addition. Um, it's just scary. And I think, I think people really need to be extra careful um, before they quickly spew out their, their thoughts or their opinions, because the, it will get twisted no matter what, even things that we may say on here may get twisted. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? But, but, you know, everybody has the right to their own opinions, their own political views, their own ideologies, what have you. But um, right. But it's, it's tr- just, yeah. interesting. It's tricky when, yeah. Yes, Casper C. does have the right to his own views, but he runs a billion-dollar cybersecurity yeah. company. And when you have a, an unfolding cyber war breaking out, it starts to it starts to look it starts to turn into a well. What is what is look at the power of free speech? You know, you can't yell yeah. Oh, yeah. fire fire in a crowded theater. Can you say? Um, can you make? cybersecurity statements as a cybersecurity expert for the enemy, you know, for instance, is that, is that threatening to the U S and, and I think that's why people are taking note of this, this type of thing. And, and, you know, you know, tensions are high. People are um, very, uh, they're agitated. And so uh, it's understandable that they would react this way. Let's just hope that uh, calmer heads prevail, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And, Interestingly, just one final thought on this. Um, one of the stories, I think it was from Vice or something I read, background reading, there, there was a story that broke in the past about uh, Kaspersky getting onto somebody's computer, and this was somebody, an NSA agent, and, and he brought it to their attention, and somehow there was a connection to the server, da, da, da. And Kaspersky immediately removed it and the story kind of went quiet and I didn't hear any more information on it. So there has been a pattern of things that have happened that have drawn a corollary to mm-hmm. his company and to, to the Russia state. So I guess uh, whether it's true or not, or alleged and any facts behind it, we, we probably will never know. Yeah. But since it's happened several times, I think everybody tends to walk on eggshells, especially when a tweet like that goes out. Um, yeah. All right. Well, as we transition to our final story here, just as a reminder to our, our, our listeners, we thank you for listening. And just to remind you that this episode of Cyber Coast to Coast is brought to you by Cyberlytica. 
providing proactive cybercrime intelligence. And to learn more about Cyberlytica, please take a moment, visit cyberlytica.com. Uh, interesting story here, and I didn't have a chance to do stats, but I'm curious how many people use Netflix? I think it's a lot of people. It's kind of like having an Amazon account these days. It's like everybody, probably everybody but me. Um, the, the story here comes from The Verge. Why Netflix is starting to crack down on password sharing. And, and I know, I think you're, you're a Netflix user, Craig. Mm-hmm. So you could probably weigh in on this. I'm just going to do a brief um, cliff notes on some of the highlights of the story, but love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, and, and it's mentioning here in the past, I think they were a little lax on some of the password sharing and, and now they're starting to change the way they handle and allow or disallow uh, account sharing. And it mentions in the story there now that subscriber numbers have stopped growing. Netflix is looking for a way to increase revenue. So I hate to say it, but we always mention this. It's always about follow the money trail with most of these things. And, and that kind of gives you a sense of where they're going. In other words, too many people are sharing Netflix accounts, which tells people they don't have to get their own Netflix accounts. And hence mm-hmm. their revenue is kind of stalled a little bit. Um, they're kind of said that it's a test rate for now, and they're going to be updating some rules and further enforcement in the future, but mentions a statistically Netflix currently pays about 19 billion in content per year, staggering number mm-hmm. for the amount of content. So they're trying to maintain good quality content to keep the subscribers, keep that flow of cash coming in. Um, and it says Netflix allows different members of the same house to share an account but I guess the question comes up, how would they stop people outside the house? Do they do any analysis, look at the network, check the IP, where the origin of it is, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like it mimics what we talked about really in our first story about, or the cyber tip of the week, I should say, about password reuse. If we think about it in, in a parallel sense here, um, is, is it okay for people to reuse, or I should say share that that same password uh what are some of your thoughts as as a netflix user uh well uh you know full disclosure i've been a netflix uh subscriber member since long long ago before they even had streaming i was getting the physical discs mailed to my house now that that was a way um that you know, there was no problem with uh, with uh, account sharing back then because you're tied, you're locked to your physical address. You know, you can't. I mean, I guess you could hand hand the disc over to your neighbor or your friend, and they could borrow sure, it, sure. and then you then you return it and all that. But that pretty much kept account sharing as a non-existent problem. Uh, but what we've seen with a lot of these companies, especially startups, you know, when when Netflix first started, the um, their streaming service. They had a few shows. They were spending less than a billion dollars a year on content. They were, it was early days. And Reed Hastings, who was the CEO, um, was actually heard, was actually quoted as saying that the sharing of accounts was a good thing. It was a beneficial thing. And we know that's true because when you're when you're a startup, you have to you have to gain market share very quickly. And you don't you burn through cash because you're just getting money from your investors. You're burning through their cash, really, in order to grow as fast as you can so that you can leap ahead of all the other competing services that are going to you know, come out there and try to rip you off and do all those things. And that's what they did. They played it. They played their hand well. They grew big. And you can even see this at, in their, uh, you know, their quarterlies. Sometimes they'll release, um, 
you know, to their investors, they'll release subscriber numbers and then they'll they'll also release like user numbers you know it's a different thing they they know exactly how many users how many people are viewing their content and they know exactly how to stop it they they resisted doing that because they were seeing great growth over the you know the past years and now i think Although, let me look right here. I see uh, fourth quarter 2021, Netflix had about 75 million US and Canada subscribers. Worldwide, I think they had about 221.8 million. This is according to just oh. the thing I pulled up in Google. I actually thought that would be the numbers would be a little bigger than that, considering how pervasive they are in the US and now internationally. They're doing a huge push internationally. And that sure. those numbers are going to, uh, maybe not the U.S. and Canada numbers, but the worldwide numbers will certainly double over the next couple of years. If for any of our uh, listeners that have Netflix, you could see they they put so much um, foreign content, foreign spoken language content in the mix now, mm-hmm. whether it's dubbed or subtitled. It's in it's in stuff that it recommends to me all the time. So wow. I know they're making a big foreign push, but yeah. um, as I was saying, they. Uh, they can turn these, uh, the ability, they can enforce this anytime they want. Um, and I think this story, we've seen these stories pop up over the past couple of years, people speculating, when are they going to do that? Because everyone knows, uh, everyone, at least that has Netflix, you might not, you don't have Netflix, so you might not know it, but I, I share an account with, uh, my father-in-law, I share an account with mom and dad, uh, mm-hmm. and we have someone else that we gave, uh, the account to and you know i'm essentially i'm i'm reusing my password it's it's stupid but you know it is with people i trust and i tell every time i i share it with someone i say here's my username here's my password uh you know (laughs) yeah exactly don't share it with anyone else um and if you have any problems let me know and i can reset the password and then we could figure something else out going forward yeah um so, but th- it's just, it's just part of the deal. You know, I have, I share that password with someone else and they share their Disney password with me, for instance. And it's, it's just like the kind entire mutual sharing or, or understood it, it sounds like. So it's not like you're, yeah. you're not stealing, they're not stealing, you're sharing. And, and I guess, tell me, tell me if you feel this way and I'm not, I'm not saying it's good or bad or right or wrong, but it sounds like almost like, Hey, I'm paying for a service. I'm paying X number of dollars, whatever it is for Disney or Netflix. And they allow some form of family sharing. So it fits within their guidelines in a sense, they kind of left the door a little bit open. So it makes it convenient. And in a sense, you're trading, you're not stealing or selling it for monetary gain. You're just benefiting from, from it by, by sharing it with someone else. Yeah. To me, uh, I mean, you can call it, you could call it a theft, I guess. I don't really, I don't care that much if somebody labels me a thief in this case, because I don't, I don't feel they're making a strong case for it until the streaming services start to enforce it and truly uh, put it out there. You know, they, in order for legal reasons, they have to say that you're not allowed to uh, share the stream outside your household the same way that they have to enforce 
anyone using a VPN to watch content that originates from outside of the country, you know, because they have deals with all of these networks that they're not allowed to show certain programs in certain countries for whatever reasons, contractual or or, or political or, you know, yeah. uh, cultural reasons, all these type of things come up. And so they have to do that. They're protecting themselves by doing that. But when you're sharing all of these services with other people, you know, putting, putting the, 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 the possibility of getting hacked and password, you know, stealing and those type of things, it really is a victimless crime because yeah. the streaming services are benefiting. And of course the users are benefiting. So I don't, I don't, I'm not worried about that. What I am worried about is eventually they will crack down and use yeah. technological means to detect someone outside of your household that is using your account. And, you know, fair game. When they do that, I'll, I'll say, oh, sorry, you can't use my account anymore. Nothing I can do about yeah. it. The problem is it's going to have a domino effect and everyone's going to say, you can't use my account. Well, you, if I can't use, your, use yours, you can't use mine. And soon we're all going to be back to siloed streaming services again like yeah, we were true. you know about 10 years ago or so <laughs> yeah and and i guess it does inherently it creates a level of churn just like the mobile phone industry or any industry of broadband if you're getting cable at home doesn't really matter the same kind of uh things work that way i guess a certain percentage of people will stop using netflix another percentage of people will now suddenly say oh i really enjoyed their content and their programming I can't use XYZ's password anymore. I'm going to sign up for Netflix. So mm-hmm. there, I guess there's, there's goods and bads with it. Hopefully more is on the good side where they can grow their revenue and grow their platform. I, I do think it's it's an interesting uh, concept, the streaming model. I, I, I really like it. I, I tend to focus more on Apple TV and the, the streaming services there, but there, there, there's so many different companies. Everybody's getting into the streaming business and, and I always kind of like that because the more people that enter it, the better it gets, because hopefully for the consumer, the prices will be a little more competitive. Mm-hmm. They won't rip you off to watch a movie at some egregious price anymore because they'll know if you're going to jump from Netflix to Hulu or to Apple TV or anywhere. Right. Um, so, so it's good for consumers over, overall. Um, and, and it's interesting how they use technology in this particular case to really improve their return, improve their, their, you know, how they could monetize it. So I mean, good for them and hopefully it works out in the good, maybe not good for next Netflix users. If you're somebody that's borrowing or sharing someone else's password. Yeah. Um, personally, I, I look at it like, I believe that they uh, indirectly encourage sharing and I think that they count on it. In fact, I, yeah. I think it's almost a, a form of mutually assured destruction in that you, you have you have Hulu, you have Disney, you have Netflix, you have Amazon Prime, you got Apple and a couple other uh, big ones. I think they all play the game and assume that my circle of friends, we're all sharing each other's accounts. Yeah. And once that circle of trust is broken, in other words, once Netflix says you can't share anymore, then what's going to happen? Suddenly, everyone's going to suddenly people like me are going to say, well, wait a minute. I like Netflix, but I don't like them that much because if I can't share my passwords 
my uh, accounts with other people, that means I'm not going to get Hulu for free. I'm not going to get Disney for free. So I'm building that cost into the overall picture. And I think these streaming services all know that. And I think this story, while there might be some truth to it, I think you can debunk that just based on uh, these kind of circles of of known friends that share these accounts, knowing that it's not really going to happen. Everyone's got their finger over the button, but no one's going to push that button and risk it because you're going to see subscriber numbers go down for a change and shareholders are not going to have that from any of these companies. So I think we're looking at a game, a giant game of chicken that they're all playing. And I don't know if it's ever really going to happen, to be honest. Yeah, it's true. I think they're all testing the waters and, and, and things do change in the, in the world. Like I think we reflect back when we were younger, the days of blockbuster, when you went to the store and you rented a Betamax movie or a VHS movie, who would have thought that world would have changed? Well, uh, there were a number of people that did. And, and there were a number of people that talked about streaming services, maybe a little ahead of their time. And, and even the world of blockbuster had their opportunity and didn't execute properly and there's nowhere there's a blockbuster anymore. I don't know of any, they're out of business. So think, yep. things change so quickly here. So I think technology, you got to, you really have to keep up with it. And I, I almost thought too, with Netflix's model, imagine if you have one paid subscriber and they, you know, give, give their password and login credentials out to three other people. In a sense, it's almost like free advertising. Mm-hmm. Now you've got three other people that are using the platform and saying, hey, I'd like to go on and I watch this particular series or, or this movie or my Friday night is a night to hang out and, and just chill and find something new on Netflix. It kind of creates a, a culture and, and an acceptance to that culture where there's a level of comfort where that's where you, where you tend to go to. I know for myself with, with Apple TV or Apple TV Plus, this and that, you get comfortable with the environment, the app, the navigation of it. You know, when I'm looking for something different and I don't mind to pay for it, if I say, hey, there's a movie to rent and it's four or $5, I'm going to click the button because I want to watch it. It does fulfill that instant gratification. And part of it is because you can become part of that ecosystem and accept it. You feel secure. It's reasonably priced. It's easy to navigate. It's maybe something you do with your friends or your family. Once you get into that world, you're just going to spend money. And that, that's really what they want to do is they need to keep improving that world of comfort. So maybe indirectly Netflix is doing that. I wonder if it's going to bite them in the butt, though, when they don't allow people to have account sharing. Well, I guess right. time will tell and we will certainly see. All right. Yep. Great, great, great stuff there. Um, and just uh, as we wind down that this uh, episode, again, we thank all of our listeners. Just as a reminder there, this episode of Cyber Coast to Coast is brought to you by Cyberlytica, providing proactive cybercrime intelligence. To learn more about Cyberlytica, we encourage you to visit cyberlytica.com. And we thank Cyberlytica for being a sponsor of Cyber Coast to Coast and all the great stuff that, that they're doing. Um, real quick, I just wanted to do a shout out as a, uh, to, to all our listeners that there is another episode of what keeps you up at night. I know we have a lot of loyal followers to that and I get some great feedback to it. And uh, I want you to check that out. You can certainly go on, on the website and do a search there or go to scottshober.com. But I just had a great interview that just recently went up with a CEO of TDI, Paul Ionella, And that went up, had a great conversation and, and find out what his cyber fear is 
and learn about some of the great stuff that uh, TDI is doing. Again, check out the latest episode, and that's a video podcast of What Keeps You Up at Night. ScottShober.com, you could download that or go to YouTube and uh, subscribe to the channel there and and watch that and some of the other great episodes. I forget how many we have up there, but geez, it's got to be probably 50 plus episodes of What Keeps You Up at Night, sharing people's cyber fears, and we've got a lot more coming. So Again, we, we thank our, our loyal audience and, uh, and sponsors that are, that are helping us keep this great content going out there. Yeah. Um, we, we were on a little hiatus from that, that uh, series, uh, but now we're, we're starting to ramp up again. So hopefully it's kind of like a season three. We kind of, we did sort of like a season one yep. and then there was a hiatus back, you know, about a year ago. And then we started doing another big, another chunk of episodes. And then we kind of took a break and that's right around the time we started this, this new podcast. Uh, so now we're going to see if we can handle the workload of two concurrent podcasts on top of all the other stuff going on at Berkeley yeah. Baritronics. <laughs> yeah. Lots of stuff. And, and we do tend to have seasonal times when we get really busy and part of that pulls us both you and I focusing on our customers, which which has to come first because that pays the bills and we appreciate the business we get here. But we do like to provide a lot of content and a lot of tips and a lot of other information through great shows like Cyber Coast to Coast and our two-minute cybersecurity briefing and, and our other podcast, What Keeps You Up at Night. So again, we really uh, appreciate everybody giving feedback. Give us a rating, uh, give us a review so we can continue to pr- improve what we're doing and hopefully keep us all uh, uh, safer. So again, that's, uh, that's all we have for this episode. Thank you again. And uh, this is Scott Schober from the East Coast signing out and appreciate everybody there and stay safe. over